Welcome to this third episode of Hacking for Cash, an SP podcast on state-sponsored campaigns of cyber espionage for commercial gain. My name is Bart Hogeveen. In our previous episode, we heard from our colleague Katva Priandita, who spoke with two cyber threat analysts from Mitre Corporation. They mentioned it's predominantly state-sponsored hackers that are out there to extract intellectual property and everything that comes with it. Trade secrets, sensitive business information, R&D data, pricing information, etc. But when we talk about cybersecurity and intellectual property, we also have to talk about intellectual property itself and what are the existing mechanisms for the protection of IP. And that's the topic of today's episode. We welcome Dr. Francis Curry. Mr. Curry was trained as a lawyer in Australia and obtained his PhD at Cambridge. In 1985, he joined WIPO, the World Intellectual Property Organization. And from 2008 to 2020, he stood at the helm of the organization as Director General. Please join my colleague, Dr. Tisha Prakash, in conversation with Dr. Francis Curry. Francis, welcome to our podcast. Let me just start with our first question, hard hitting. What role does WIPO play in IP protection? Well, thank you, Tista. It's a pleasure to be here. Look, it plays several roles. First of all, it runs a number of global systems whereby you can get intellectual property protection in multiple countries through one single application. So under these, for example, there are about 280,000 international patent applications filed each year. Trademarks, designs, geographical indications, and there's an arbitration and mediation centre for disputes between private parties. Then it administers about 26 international multilateral treaties, which have been established since starting in 1883. It's also a reference for activity in the area of intellectual property. It publishes the Global Innovation Index each year, which is a world reference, statistics on activity in, in the field of intellectual property, and then a big technical assistance and development cooperation program. You mentioned the 26 multilateral treaties that govern the protection of intellectual property. You mentioned the Global Innovation Index. Those are clear indications that IP is considered important to countries' economies, their competitiveness, etc. But still, talking about IP and IP protection and assessing the scope and scale of IP theft is really challenging. Why do you think that's the case and what more needs to be done? Well, look, I think the term puts everyone off. You know, you hear intellectual property or patents and you sort of tend to switch off. But in fact, it plays a very important role. I mean, if you think uh, comparative advantage these days resides in technology. And the latest technology is innovation, of course. We call it innovation. And intellectual property protects that. Well, that's a fairly simple message, you know, which shows that Intellectual property is at the heart of economic geopolitics, at any rate, in uh, the current times. And that's why we see, for example, President Biden on the one hand, or President Xi Jinping on the other hand, mention frequently intellectual property in their speeches. The interplay between technology and innovation these days occurs in a digital environment. Almost every new patent, innovation or design will have some cyber-enabled element. How is the ubiquitous nature of the digital environment affecting IP and innovation? Well, I think the effects of digital transformation are fundamental, vast, and complex. Uh, Let's take uh, music as an example. In the course of the last 30 years, we've moved from vinyl to CD-ROMs to iTunes to streaming. There has been total disruption in the business models 
for music production and distribution. Indeed, a revolution, if you like, in terms of music production, distribution and consumption. And that's just music, but it's an activity, of course, which is fundamental to our culture. Then you think of software databases, the internet, advanced manufacturing and artificial intelligence, and you see that digital technology is actually affecting the whole of creation, innovation, production, distribution and consumption in our economy. And the two major, I think, legal challenges that come out of that and that we have to deal with are the territorial reach and effect of national laws on a global medium, because the internet, of course, is a global medium. So we have activity which is received in one country, may be governed by the laws of that country because it's received there, but actually the initiators of the activity are located in another jurisdiction. So our national systems can't cope very easily with the international medium. It's interesting that you mentioned that national systems of legislation, regulation and IP registration struggle to cope with these kinds of ubiquitous transnational and borderless technologies. It means that a great deal of global governance is dependent on state responsible behavior and the voluntary commitments of industry to act responsibly. That brings me to G20 agreement from 2015, where the G20 leaders agreed that no country should conduct or support ICT-enabled theft of intellectual property, including trade secrets or other confidential business information. What's your view on this commitment and its endurance, noting that the U.S.-China relations in particular at that stage were at a very different wavelength? Well, look, I think it was a very important step in a very important forum, and uh, namely the G20. But I think we have to remember that creating an international norm is a long process. You know, it took 30 years of negotiations to get any sort of framework internationally with respect to nuclear weapons. And it was very fundamental. So it's a long process. And so the G20 decision, I think, while a very positive step, it's only a tiny step. Uh, Because in the first place, it's a state obligation rather than an obligation addressed to private parties. So you would have to prove either that the state itself or that the state is doing the uh, cyber espionage or that it is supporting that uh, illicit activity. And that doesn't cover, for example, private mercenaries that illegally acquire and then sell secrets to states or other private parties. In addition, uh, how do you enforce this obligation? there's no mechanism for that, and it w- so it would be necessary to fall back on diplomatic measures like trade negotiations or naming and shaming. And it's, I think, an illustration of this much broader and more profound problem that we face that we've just touched on and discussed, and that is that despite COVID and the effects of COVID-19 and the policies of decoupling and de-risking, we're still in an extraordinarily connected and fast digital world. And we don't have the institutional mechanisms to deal with that reality. The speed of development of menaces or problems, such as international cyber espionage, is so much faster than our institutional response, which comes really from mechanisms and institutions that were developed for a less connected, slower and physical world. Following on from your view, In terms of the G20 norm, 
How serious is the threat of the state-sponsored attempts of stealing IP theft? Considering the growing economic impact of the competition between U.S. and China, how do we stand now in terms of enforcing this particular norm? I think we have to remember historically that state-sponsored theft of technology and IP has always gone on. Justinian, right, he was the emperor of the Eastern Roman Empire, and he was famous, amongst other things, for the consolidation and socialization of laws. He conspired with private parties to steal silkworms from China. The United Kingdom, through the agency of the East India Company, it stole tea plants and the treatment and production techniques from China. And like silk, it was the basis of a massive industry. There's a statue in the Belgian town of Ghent to a former entrepreneur and mayor, Levin Bowens, who was hailed for stealing the spinning mule and steam engine from England in the early days of the Industrial Revolution, thereby starting the textile industry in, in Flanders. And Samuel Slater, known in Britain as Slater the Traitor, he stole, amongst other things, the technologies for manufacturing cotton which launched the Industrial Revolution, in fact, in the United States of America. So this behaviour has been there for a long time and it's unlikely to go away. What's the difference now? I think uh, the difference is that as technology moves to a digital expression, the problems of governance of this misbehaviour are magnified extraordinarily, and we've discussed that. You know, how do you actually create an enforceable international Norm. And there is a problem also of detection. You know, T, taking the, the example I gave, will a Scottish engineer disguised himself as a Chinese nobleman in order to infiltrate the tea growing regions and the tea production facilities. Uh, and that is now replaced. You know, that was something physical and something that one could have uncovered, but that's now replaced by the dark web of viruses and all such other tricks. Detection is extremely difficult. It is extremely difficult to detect, to have the norm governing it and to enforce the norm. We talked about IP protection, misappropriation and the advent of digital technologies as a phenomenon that's equally perceived throughout the world. But obviously there are differences in risks and resilience between, for example, Australia and Indonesia, between EU and Sub-Saharan Africa. From your experience at WIPO, where a great deal of work also went into providing emerging economies with technical assistance, what are effective ways to support and encourage developing and emerging economies to strengthen their IP protection, including cybersecurity measures? Well, look, first of all, since it follows on what we were just discussing, I should say that I don't think that developing and emerging countries are the problem with respect to cyber espionage. Because in order to want to infiltrate uh, and steal technology, you have to have the capacity to use that. And so this cyber espionage problem is really a north-north problem rather than a north-south problem. And I include within the north the developed industrial economy of China. But it's, that, that is what it is. But now returning to your question, I think the best way to get developing and emerging countries to strengthen their IP protection is to assist them in having their own products and services that need protection. In other words, to assist them in developing local technological capacity and in acquiring foreign technology 
legitimately, as long as developing and emerging countries don't have their own products to protect, they are running IP systems for foreigners, you know, as a cost of participation in the game of comparative advantage in the world trading system. So developing local technology, it's a long-term endeavour. For those countries that have done it successfully, for example, the Republic of Korea, China, Singapore, it took them at least 30 years. Now, that's longer than the electoral cycle of any leader. And so you have to have bipartisan support for this policy of the development of technological capacity over a long term. And then there are other priorities, of course, for developing an emerging economy, such as basic health care, clean water, sanitation, education, infrastructure, and so on. So it's a long road. It's a long road to construct this technological capacity. And if it were not, well, we would see a much more even uh, distribution of technological capacity around the world. It really takes a lot. If you can develop that, then you have something to protect locally, and then you see the reason easily to strengthen your intellectual property systems. If you were to make some predictions, what are the main challenges that you foresee when it comes to the stability of the global system of R&D, innovation and digitization? And how do you see the tensions between China and the U.S. and Europe, on the other hand, affecting global competitiveness and the free and open international trading system? It's an enormous risk because what we're seeing, I think, uh, amongst other things, is the conflation of security and the economy. You know, those two things which may have been separate ones, once you had a foundry for making cannonballs, right, and that didn't have many applications in the civilian economy. Now if you have a foundry for making computer chips, it has applications right across the civilian economy and the military. So the underlying technologies for the civilian economy and the military are the same as a result of the advent of the digital transformation. Uh, that means that we have a great possible or potential vulnerability. That's what de-risking is all about. Now, to return to what you're saying, it is, I think, a major geopolitical risk against which one must really uh, take all possible measures to guard the crown jewels. Because those crown jewels, your technological advantage. The innovations that have been created, let's take Australia, innovations that have been created in Australia. Well, you want to retain the competitive advantage that comes from your development at considerable expense of research and development and then going through the whole process of commercialisation. You want to retain that commercial advantage and not have it stolen in a second. Now, to just to use a little example from another field, the cost of production of a film, you know, it's enormous. You might be able to make a film for $20 million, but often it's $200 million or $400 or $500. That whole outlay of costs can be reproduced in a second. Well, in a second, in a minute, let's say, digitally. So this is the great vulnerability that we have, and I think, to give a short answer to your question, yes, even in developing countries, 
in emerging economies, it's a great risk because whatever they have developed, you know, there is a, a possibility of it being misappropriated. Francis Curry, it has been a pleasure listening to your insights and views. Thank you very much. Pleasure, Tista. Nice talking to you. Francis Curry, with his deep insights from working with the World Intellectual Property Organization, makes some really important points. The fact that issues of national and economic security increasingly converge, and that that's mostly concentrated around underlying cyber-enabled technologies. He also mentions that discussions between developed nations and between developing economies around IP protection are quite different, and altogether that the international system is not yet organized to accommodate both issues that he raised. That brings us to what probably are the two biggest players in this space, the US and China. As you remembered, we're President Obama and President Xi, who, in 2015, were at the origins of the agreement that no state should engage in economic cyber espionage for commercial gain. In this second part of the episode, we unpacked the perspectives of both countries and the perceptions they have of one another, of IP protection, and the use of cyber tools by states. Please again join Dr. Tishta Prakash in conversation with Nigel Corey and Elizabeth Chin. I'm joined by Nigel Corey. Nigel is an Associate Director at the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, a US-based think tank specializing in trade policy. His work centers around cross-border data flows, intellectual property, and digital trade. Nigel has testified, written reports, and conducted research projects for international organizations such as WTO. He is a member of the UK International Data Transfer Expert Council. Thank you, Nigel, for joining us. Let me start by asking, how important is IP for countries in this day and age? Firstly, it's great to be here uh, as an Australian based in DC, working with ASPE on an issue that I think is still incredibly important. And despite it playing a, a leading role in shaping the nature of the relationship between the United States and China, it doesn't get as much attention as it deserves. But to your question, I mean, it deserves attention because IP is critical to every country, every firm seeking to take advantage of the digital technologies that are changing the way we work and the way our economies function and the way our societies function. Uh, and in the context of the, the global race for innovation advantage, as countries sort of seek to support their firms to become sort of the leading providers in digital and other sort of emerging technologies, uh, more and more are focusing, obviously, on the role that IP plays in supporting these firms and their ability to sort of grow and scale and succeed. I mean, intellectual property has always been important for economic development, but if anything, IP has become even more important as the nature of uh, the modern economy has become more innovation-driven, given it's powered by both tangible but intangible knowledge, creativity and technology. And I think it's underplayed about how critical sort of it is as an enabling factor for uh, high-tech firms to succeed, to grow and succeed. An example that I think makes this clear is source code, the, the coded instructions at the heart of a computer program. Source code enables computer technologies like algorithms to do the amazing things they do. But for companies developing software, protecting source code is necessary to prevent other entities from stealing and free riding on the large R&D costs associated with software in that the first copy of this software may, be, may cost them a billion dollars, but obviously the marginal cost, therefore, after falls away. And so if they lose that source code, they lose that incredible investment that it took them to get there. And this source code is the intellectual property at the heart of sort of a lot of modern digital innovation. But because it's digital, it can be easily copied, transferred, and replicated. And so 
it is one of many types of IP that get a growing amount of attention from policymakers, given policymakers recognize that IP is actually incredibly important to supporting high-tech trade and innovation. And, and the reality is that because IP is intangible, if a country doesn't provide sort of robust intellectual property protections, that firm and those individuals can easily move to another country where they can get the strong IP protection and enforcement that, that they know that they need to truly succeed. And so the mobile nature of IP and talent and creativity means that uh, more countries, if they want to play a role in, in sort of uh, supporting their firms to sort of develop uh, that new advanced technologies, they need to have the proper IP framework in place to have a chance of even competing with firms from other elsewhere around the world. That's a really strong argument you present there, that IP is critical to every country, but also that in this day and age, IP is mobile and talent, creativity, know-how, and data travels quickly and easily to other jurisdictions. To build on that and looking at the U.S. perspective, what are Washington's main challenges, the main issues and concerns in relation to IP protection at the moment? Yeah, so I, I think the point you make is a good one. IP matters for every economy, but it's particularly clear given that the US is a world leader in many advanced technologies that depend on IP. And so the US's approach to IP has evolved over time and continues to evolve. And I mean, it, which reflects the fact that, I mean, few countries are really sort of value IP in a way like the US does to the point where sort of the founders of the United States put provisions relating to intellectual property in the constitution. And so that gives you an idea of just how important IP has always been in sort of US economic policy. But basically what we've seen, especially in, I'd, I'd say, the last 10 to 15 years is a growing focus on how the US regime for IP needs to continue to evolve to address the, the current challenges. The, the agreements you mentioned from the WTO and the World Intellectual Property Organization really should be seen as a floor, as a baseline for countries if they want to play a larger role in sort of advanced tech sectors. And so what the US has done is just continue to build on it to, to address the, the modern nature and challenges faced by IP. For example, uh, the Defend Trade Secrets Act of 2016, which updated US law as it relates to trade secrets, which is obviously a critical a component in the, the conflict between China and the United States as it relates to IP. There's also been uh, increasing focus on enforcement, uh, bringing cases of cyber-enabled IP theft against largely Chinese-based um, or supported actors sort of stealing sort of industrial secrets. And so it's, it's a constant battle not just to update the laws, but to ensure that, for example, the, the Department of Justice have the resources and the organizational structure to sort of target sort of the um, modern cases of sort of IP theft. But in terms of there's two sort of main challenges facing the IP regime here in the United States at the moment. The first is that a number of US policymakers have succumbed to the misguided economic narrative that IP only benefits big firms while harming workers and consumers, and that IP therefore should be opposed. And so we've seen this distorted sort of narrative around IP feed into some of the Biden administration and congressional action in and around IP. It certainly played a role in the Biden administration's consideration of a IP waiver in the context of COVID um, vaccines. But then the other major sort of challenge that the US finds itself in 
as the world economy has become more sort of intangible and based around IP is the global challenge in that the global regime and framework for protecting IP simply hasn't caught up or stayed anywhere near close to where uh, technology and business practices need it to be. And so there's a large gap between the type of protection US firms get at home versus what they get in many markets around the world. And in many regards, like the debate around IP is still anchored in, in sort of a, a 20th century perspective of IP instead of sort of the, the data digital tech sort of type environment or context that we sort of more policymakers increasingly sort of look at IP at. And so it's a challenging environment for the US and, and those firms that rely on IP both at home and increasingly abroad, given IP is now a central tool or weapon in this global race for innovation advantage that we're seeing play out between the US and China and India and Europe and other countries. I'm also joined by Elizabeth Chin-Hale. Ms. Chin is a partner at a US law firm and a member of the American Bar Association. She's an expert practitioner on issues related to intellectual property protection in and between China and the United States, as she previously served as the Apple Senior Patent Counsel slash China coordinator, and in a different role, she engaged in IP discussions for the C919 project of the Commercial Aircraft Corporation of China, COMAC. Elizabeth, welcome. Can I ask you the same question? How important is IP for countries in this day and age, and in particular for a country like China? Okay, yeah, so a little bit of, I guess I'll start with a little bit of historical background. So China started this protecting its IP, I would say, depending on where you count it, but I would say it's in the 1980s. So by then, the West has had at least a couple hundred years of history on the IP system. So China's late to the game, but I think it embraced the IP system with a lot of enthusiasm and it's catching up quick, at least in terms of number of patents and trademark that are being filed and being issued by the Chinese IP office. So for example, I just went to this IP5 meeting. This is an annual meeting by the biggest IP offices around the world, United States, China, EU, Korea, and Japan. So China has made it to this club and it's probably by now has the largest number of filings every year comparing with worldwide. So it's doing very well, I think, in terms of uh, the laws that is in compliance with international standards, and it has a very healthy number of issued rights. But most criticism, and continue to be the case, is it has a very relaxed enforcement system, which is also very confusing to use. And we can go into more details about why it's so confusing later. So comparing to the US, United States uh, is a capitalist system. So intellectual property rights, whether it's trademark patents or copyrights, they're all considered very serious private rights, which could be used for commercial purposes, entry barriers in the marketplace, and these monopolistic Semi-monopolistic rights are considered a just dessert for the innovators' uh, efforts. So China, on the other hand, kind of has a different take on the intellectual property system. We can go back to its socialist roots. I think in the early days, all the innovations were considered to be collective rights. I remember in the early days, you know, I visited our university, 
or big enterprises such as Hire, uh, which is one of the biggest um, appliance manufacturer from China, they were saying that they were supposed to be the leader. In other words, they were leading innovation and they are not required, but kind of morally uh, obligated to share their innovation with all the other players. So it is, I think they're kind of trying to, they're catching up to the game, but still I think that old feeling and that part of goes hand in hand with the government's relaxed enforcement environment that innovation is really for fostering economic activities and creating new opportunities. And to this day, I think uh, the shifting, the government, Chinese government focus has shifted from kind of getting the number of rights up to commercializing the rights. And they still consider that as a foundation for creating new economic opportunities um, rather than kind of for a company to set up barriers of entry against its competitors. Now, in the U.S., but also in Europe, there is a strong sentiment, arguably with evidence, that China is still involved in the theft of IP, even in what's being called organized or industrially organized theft of IP. Why do you think that is? So, you know, going back to what I was saying, this socialist sharing attitude, seeing IP as a collective rights, worked okay domestically when you're talking about semi-competitors, but it kind of becomes a big issue, becomes a trade secret theft issue when you're talking about when you cross international boundaries uh, to kind of global competitors who are not necessarily wanting to share and we are competing for global influence and market share. So I, I think this is when China is kind of falling behind its realization that, hey, this is a different kind of game now. We're not talking about collectives in the socialist environment who are helping each other. We're talking about global competition. And every country has a right to guard its trade secrets. And all of all the IP rights, uh, the patents, or trademarks, and copyrights, I think trade secrets and confidential information, which you mentioned, is the most problematic one. So trade secrets is protected under the TRIPS agreement. Uh, which is administered by the World Trade Organization. So every World Trade Organization, WTO member country, has an obligation to have laws to prevent an authorized disclosure and use of commercial information of value. And yet, China's not alone, but it's probably particularly singled out because it's it's such a uh, such a visible problem that it doesn't have a standalone trade secret law. So it has a patent law, has copyrights law, has trademark laws, it has a lot, you know, even some of the privacy laws and data protection laws, but it does not have a trade secret law. It's protected. So trade secret commercial information, it's roughly protected under this entire, uh, sorry, it's called the Anti-Unfair Competition Law, AUCL, which is a much broader law that's enacted to regulate the market competition, market order, prevent as unfair competition, and as a part of that, it also protects trade secrets. So it's, it's, it's a problem. I think, you know, to really get down to the root of the problem, you should really have a standalone trade secret law, which spells out what is a trade secret, who's protected, and what measures that can be used. We being we, meaning the U.S. IP community, along with the U.S. government, have been pressuring China for this 
a standalone trade secret law for years, but it still hasn't happened yet. But as I mentioned, China is not alone. For for example, I went to a conference. I was uh, surprised to hear that even some European countries and India also do not have the standalone trade secret law. Therefore, my take on this is I don't think the government is supporting or encouraging theft of IP, but it's a kind of a passive player and has created an overly relaxed enforcement environment under which that trade secret could be stolen without consequences. And this is compounded by the fact that the Chinese courts, if you were to, especially for foreign companies, if you were to bring a trade secret case under this anti-unfair competition law, you can do so. And some companies have successfully done so. You do run the risk of leaking your trade secrets in the process, right? Because the courts are not kind of as strictly guarded as some other courts may be, for example, courts in the U.S. So uh, again, I think uh, coming down to the root of the problem, we should continue to push China to have a standalone trade secret law. And we also need to make sure that the Chinese government kind of enforce its IP laws seriously. And uh, there's also this overall kind of atmosphere in the workplace, which I think is cleaning up slowly. But most trade secrets, you're going to talk about kind of state-sponsored act of stealing. But usually on a private party basis, trade secrets are usually stolen not by cyber acts, but by departing employees. And during the height of economic activities in China, I mean, I worked in China and they were, it's just a revolving door. People getting a better job opportunities all the time. They leave and they leave with what's in their head. And they're not necessarily trained legally to understand what's trade secret by the company, what is there really in their head and their innovation. So a lot of trade secrets are stolen that way. I'm really interested to hear Nigel's thoughts on this, because I think lawmakers and politicians in the U.S. really see this as a state-to-state affair with deliberate intent to undermine existing agreements. Nigel, what can you say about this? The short answer is not much in that U.S. government action on IP issues with China is at a low point. And this sort of reflects sort of the, the rapid change in the nature of the bilateral relationship. And I, the, the starting point here is that my boss at ITIF chaired the US-China Strategic and Economic Dialogues Innovation Committee during the Obama administration when Chinese cyber theft was, was still prevalent but as an emerging issue. But even in the context of that discussion there, China was still basically framing cooperation on IP and R&D as the US side providing technology and R&D to China for them to use. It was a very one-way transaction. We saw in the second administration with Obama that it certainly rose through the agenda and that the threat from state-supported cyber theft of IP actually produced a major response. It led to the 2015 G20 agreement that you cited at the start of the podcast. And while there were some very short-term benefits to this agreement, it fell away. And again, I think we lose focus of the fact that IP theft and forced technology transfers were the basis for the Trump administration's sort of initiation of a trade war with China. And it it, it sort of produced a litany of examples and cases of how China has has essentially ignored or undermined both domestic but international IP trade law and, and agreements. And so 
with that, we've gotten to a point now where obviously US, the US government and actors don't trust China. Chinese-based actors still are prevalent in, in tr- using cyber and other traditional sort of means to steal valuable IP here in the United States. And so we're sort of back to square one, yet China still sort of is running rampant. And I mean, recent evidence of this was that the FBI director gave a speech in January 2020, where he stated that threats from Chinese, the Chinese government are, quote, more brazen and more damaging than ever before, end quote, and that the Chinese government steals staggering volumes of information. And so where does that lead us now? Basically, the only bipartisan issue here in DC at the moment is on action against China. Only recently, the head of the new House Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party, Congressman Mike Gallagher, wrote to the Department of Justice just a few weeks ago about Chinese IP theft. Only a week ago, the US Department of Justice created a new section in its National Security Division to increase its ability to prosecute nation-state threat actors and state-sponsored cybercriminals. And so I think this type of heightened enforcement and prosecution is part of what we will increasingly see here in the United States, but elsewhere around the world as policymakers here and elsewhere just sort of get sick of China just trying to basically take them for for mugs in, in continuing to steal IP from these sort of very valuable firms that they're obviously actively trying to support and help grow in this sort of global competition for tech advantage. Elizabeth, if I may... You were involved with the COMAC project, China's efforts to build its own commercial aircraft plane. And that project's been accused of having stolen heaps of IP from the US and Europe-based companies. What's your take on this? Were there any aspects of wrongdoing or misappropriations from the Chinese side? Well, let me see. I, yeah, the BICI is run by a friend of mine from Peking University. We belong to the Peking University Alumni Association. And he's been running this for several years now. And I do hear from time to time that he's traveling to England, to Europe. So it's still very active. So like I mentioned, the, the Chinese institution are so much, not so much interested in enforcing the rights. We do hear cases in the United States, Caltech, uh, UC Santa Barbara, UC Berkeley, which are suing big companies uh, for infringing their IP rights. The Chinese university the institutes are much more interested in creating economic opportunities and creating new companies. So that that's the say. And you brought up this uh, COMAC. COMAC was kind of very dear to me when I worked in China. And that was my uh, my project. And I think I was probably hired by my employer, a U.S. Uh, multinational, for the COMAC project. There are other projects, but that was definitely a future project. And we spent a lot of time on that. So a little bit of the background, I think COMAC, I mean, the big airplane, especially the commercial airplane in China, it has a long history. I think they have some failed early attempts. I think they were first, the beginning, they were trying to copy the 707. And they realized, wait, this is old. We're just recreating an old airplane. So they kind of bypassed that and say, we're just going to buy from Boeing and Airbus. We don't need our own airplane. But there was a very popular premier of China, uh, Zhu, Mr. Zhu Rongji, he took a strong interest in developing big airplanes for China. So that project kind of took off. And uh, when I went there to Shanghai, I think it was 2005, but 2005 on, and I would say that the project was at its height. So China had very little 
experience with building commercial aircraft. And C919 was a very modest proposal. It's a single aisle airplane that at best can compete with 737. You know, it's not going to be the 747 or 757 or any of the, the later models. And uh, everyone also, they, they depend on foreign suppliers. So all the U.S. companies were there. We do talk, you know, and uh, Rockwell, Parker Aerospace, Goodrich, GE. So everybody was there selling things to China. And in the meanwhile, the Chinese demanded some level of technology transfer. And I think what happened was we were all demanded to form joint ventures with Konak. So I think by then, none of foreign companies were naive. I, I think the naivety came was a high-speed rail project. You know, I think the Europeans um, realized they created their most fierce competitor by, by doing uh, this project in China. So nobody was, you know, not only these foreign companies were naive, we talked behind the scene, we all faced the same problem. So what did we do? We tiered the information on a need to know basis. So not every employee has access. It, it's it's very tiered and you, you get these kind of technical information on a need to know basis. And we were careful with employee trainings. Part of my job there was to kind of hold trainings for all the employees, teaching them about this concept of trade secrets, you know, obligations as departing employees. What is company IP? What is personal IP? You can't walk away with company IP in, to leverage for a better package somewhere else. We had separate manufacturing. I think a lot of companies were manufacturing the things that they do not want to be stolen outside of China and only manufacture the lower tech components in China. So, and we spent a lot of time negotiating with COMAC counterparts, IP provisions in the contract, which took it very seriously. What is foreground IP? What is background IP? And foreground IP is very problematic. So background IP is what each party brings to the table. And usually it's brought by the foreign suppliers. But once it kind of gets into the joint venture, it's commingled, the Chinese employees or other employees get involved, the ownership becomes blurred. So I think some secrets were probably taken away through the process with joint ventures. And I learned after I left, uh, returned to the United States, that joint venture is no longer like the favorite vehicle for foreign companies. They might have realized that the, there are some structural problems with joint venture where intellectual properties could be linked to the other side. So, yeah, we, I, I think we were on notice. We did uh, what we could. But at the same time, the foreign suppliers were in a bind, right? Because everybody knows that this is going to be a very lucrative project. I can tell you a joke, but the C919 was uh, not uh, anybody's favorite project. Uh, when we go to meetings, um, we were joked that we're never going to write in a C919. We're definitely not going to allow our family friends to write one, one of these C919. It has launched and apparently it passed a lot of safety measures worldwide. So it's probably not as bad as we thought it was going to be. But everybody could see that C919 was just going to be beginning. I heard rumors about the C. 929, and I'm sure the C939 is not too far behind. And I'm sure just knowing how Chinese technology 
kind of leverage the past experience and developing and innovating based on past mistakes, that these newer aircrafts, the series, is going to have a great future. So nobody wants to be left out. And, the, you know, Comad made it pretty clear, if you want a piece of the pie in the future, now in the future, you have to do a certain amount of technology transfer. What in your mind explains U.S. frustration with China, the Chinese government, and the Chinese system of IP protection that is leading to this great deal of distrust between both sides, especially when it comes to free and open trade, technology transfers, and cybersecurity? Well, um, I think we're, again, going back to a fundamental difference between socialism, where everything is government planned. You know, they have their five-year plan every five years, so everything's planned out. And the government will pour a lot of resources. Every level of government will pledge their support and resources to achieve these goals, as opposed to what we have in the United States, which is a laissez-faire capitalism. We don't believe in the government meddling. You know, we we have two parties. I guess depending on which what you look at, there are a lot of Americans and their company who thinks that. The, the less the government does, the better off the companies will be. Just leave us to do our thing. So I can bring out an example. So when it comes to recalibrating the power between the employers and employees, and China put in its patent law that the in- innovators, the inventors, are ob- the company is obligated to give them a certain percentage once the invention is commercialized. I don't think the U.S. is going to go there. That's up to as a contractual rights. In the U.S., it's kind of like the sanctimony of private parties. It's depending on two private parties to decide to do. It's not a government's business. But China takes a very different approach, and they want to protect their inventors. So that's what they do. I think there has its advantages and disadvantages. But I, I think in that way, it's probably, uh, given this environment, it's probably a good thing that government's stepping in. As to does that give an unfair advantage to, to Chinese players? I think definitely if you're trying to enter into the China market, because Chinese companies in old days, I mean, not too old, but I would say in the past five to 10 years, the government gave a lot of subsidies to foster innovation, to help the companies to apply and accumulate IP rights. In all fairness to them, I mean, even when I was working for a U.S. multinational, because we were incorporated in China, uh, some of our Chinese counsel also approached me and said, hey, are you interested in getting sub- government subsidies for this? So there, it's really not based on whether you're foreign origin or not, but it's based on the nationality of the enterprise. If you want a government subsidy from China and you're a Chinese incorporated entity, I think you can also get some subsidies. But that comes with a lot of strings attached. And you, as a foreign company, we're not going to comply with the restrictions that, you know, on what does the government want that you cannot transfer your IP outside of China without going through all this approval process. So, so in a way, that's true. The Chinese companies had a colossal advantage when it comes to applying for IP in China because they don't need to pay and we have to come out of our own pocket. And the council enforcement, if you look at statistics, the foreign companies that file IP infringement suits in China in the court system actually do pretty well. I don't think that indicates that the Chinese courts are favoring foreign parties. I think what that means is the foreign parties 
know that it's a big undertaking to file a lawsuit. This goes back to what I was saying earlier. Chinese has a very difficult enforcement system, especially if you're a foreign company. You know, just bring your documents to China, documents produced outside of China into Chinese court, or cost you an arm and leg because they're not part of the, this uh, Hague system. And you have to go through legalization, authentication for every piece of document. And for that reason, because it's so difficult, when the foreign party files a lawsuit in China, it's usually because they're well-repaired and the facts are very clear. And therefore, if you just look at statistics, the foreign parties actually have a very good tendency to win their lawsuits. And just to clarify, has cyber-enabled IP theft really been a topic of discussion and debate in any of these negotiations around IP and IP protection? No, I I think, I mean, again, I think the cybercrime you have in mind, and tell me if I'm wrong, is usually like some of the cases I just found the Chinese hacker engaging multi-layer campaign to acquire IP from foreign companies to support the development of Chinese C919 or Chinese state-sponsored hackers that were revealed to have a targeted U.S. cancer institute to take information relating to cutting-edge cancer research. I think those cybercrimes, usually it's large-scale and it requires a lot of resources, and probably not something that the Chinese private companies will get into. They're probably more likely to spend their energy into hiring talents and kind of marketing and development of desirable products. So I think these cyber crimes are usually conducted at government level. But of course, as a private practitioner, I wouldn't be privy to that kind of information. I don't hear it discussed very much. As a private practitioner for trade secret thefts, what I encounter most commonly are what I talked about earlier, it's a departing employee, especially at the height of economic uh, frenzy where people are coming and going all the time. And the companies do have a very good system of tiered access, need to know basis. So the companies haven't done its own homework and the employees don't really know what their rights are. And they kind of naively or not so naively take the knowledge away for a better job down the line. It's clear that there are many issues involved for a company in protecting its IP. Elizabeth mentions the revolving door of employees, lax approaches to trade secrets, etc. This brings us to the question, Nigel, how does an innovation ecosystem that does not have strong government backing protect itself from IP theft, both from conventional threats as well as cyber threats? No, it's a good question. I think they have to be cognizant of the environment they now operate in. Even if they're small, if they happen to have the crown jewels for a certain technology that has potential sort of global sort of ramifications, they need to recognize that they need to be far more aware of the type of cyber defenses they need to enact far earlier than perhaps firms 10 or 20 years ago may have had to do. They need to uh, ensure that they're committed to best in class cybersecurity protections in terms of the IT services they use as well as the type of training and education they need to do with their staff and their sort of operating systems to ensure that their whole organization is as cyber secure as possible, as early as possible to defend themselves. Because just because they're small doesn't mean they won't appear on China's radar. As bigger firms in the United States and Europe and elsewhere obviously become sort of put up their defenses, China will look to second or 
tertiary markets to look for firms that have similar or comparable technology to see if there's an easier, softer target that they can go after. And so firms just need to really be super diligent about how they are protecting their systems and their IP and, and ensuring that their people who are can be a vulnerability in terms of providing sort of um, hackers access to IT systems are trained up and ready to go. And then to have those defenses up as they seek to collaborate with folks and to ensure that they're, yeah, these people they're collaborating with have a similar commitment to best-in-class cybersecurity measures so that there's no sort of inherent weakness opened up through this type of collaboration. And so, again, I think it just needs to be at the forefront of small and medium-sized firms' leaders' minds as they engage in this type of sort of multi-stakeholder collaboration and research and commercialization or whatever it may be, that cybersecurity needs to be a core component of that. And they need to have that locked down before they do anything because all it takes is one in, one attack, and all of their hard work will be put at risk. Nigel, thank you very much. That's an excellent point to conclude with. The need for far more awareness and recognition of the geopolitical and cybersecurity environment in which economies and companies thrive. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Likewise, it's been great to be here. Also, my thanks to you, Elizabeth. I know you're extremely busy, so thank you for taking the time for us and at the end of your day. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. My thanks to Nigel and Elizabeth for sharing their views. It's clear that despite the shared understanding reach between Presidents Xi and Obama in 2015, there are widely divergent views between the US and China about what's the real problem and what are the boundaries of legitimate and illegitimate acquisition of intellectual property. And while the practice of theft of IP dates back to antiquity, as we heard from former Director General of WIPO, Francis Curry, at the beginning of the episode, the current global system of free trade and globally connected and interdependent supply chains, in combination with our dependence on a safe and secure cyberspace, makes intellectual property theft in this day and age markedly different and more concerning. As Nigel mentioned, the protection of IP is critical to any country and any economy. It's the foundation for building, growing and maintaining a knowledge-driven economy and workforce. But, as Elizabeth pointed out quite clearly, when we're dealing with global supply chains, joint ventures and the in and outflow of talent, a total prevention of unwelcomed transfer of knowledge and intellectual property is practically impossible. That's also the nature of today's economy. A lot to unpack for sure. And my thanks to Tishta Prakash. Today is unfortunately her last day at ASPI and I'd like to thank her for the contribution she made to our work on defending against cyber-enabled IP theft and for hosting the conversation today. In the next episode, we'll talk to people who are responsible for cybersecurity at universities and national research and development centers. And we hope to learn how they prioritize, how they determine risk and what kind of measures they can take to prevent acts of cyber espionage with the aim of stealing high-value research results. For now, thanks for listening.